You are listening to the IMN podcast produced by the Boise Nampa Institute of Religion. We've asked members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to share how their lives have been blessed by living the gospel of Jesus Christ. To the Savior's request, come follow me, they have all responded, I am in. Monty Stiles served his entire professional legal career of 29 years as a state and federal drug prosecutor. For 24 years, Monty was an assistant United States attorney for the District of Idaho where he supervised the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force, a group of agents and prosecutors who investigated and prosecuted high-level drug trafficking organizations, which included Los Angeles street gangs, marijuana growers on public lands, and multinational drug cartels. During a decade-long investigation of international drug smuggling and money laundering, Monty worked closely with foreign, federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies in the pursuit of evidence and witnesses in Hong Kong, Thailand, Fiji, Australia, Canada, and various locations in Europe. Because of the nature of his caseload, Monty was also a sworn Special Deputy United States Marshal. In 2011, Monty left government service and devoted all of his time to teaching. He is now a frequent keynote speaker, trainer at state, regional, and national conferences relating to drug policy, law enforcement, youth leadership, drug prevention, corporate training, and maintaining safe communities. He is particularly focused on national policies that impact youth substance abuse. Brother Stiles is an avid outdoor photographer. Monty and his wife Sandy are the proud parents of five children and 14 grandchildren. This is Michelle Burke, and you are listening to the I Am In podcast, produced by the Boise Nampa Institute of Religion. Thank you. Well, it's so good. Thank you for coming today. I know we're out of schedule, out of sync with your normal um, thing we're going on. Let's see. Oh, there we go. Cool. Uh, thank you for that introduction. Janet, you should have cut that down to about three sentences. Uh, I, I'm here with good friends Janet and, and RB and their family are neighbors of ours. I've known them forever. And these gentlemen here have helped teach my kids and help get them on the path and I just love love you guys and the rest of you. I served for five years, maybe longer, in the university stake as a high councilman in several wards. So I used to meet in this building and I met so many cool young people. I just loved it. Hated to go back to my home ward where there were elderly people like me, not nearly as fun. And, and since I had spent five years of having fun with young people, I got in lots of trouble when I went back to my, my old state. Um, but anyway, so happy to be here. Usually when I speak, I use lots of pictures. But when I found out that we're doing this mostly for uh, an audio audience, um, I'm, I'm not going to use a lot of speak, uh, talk uh, pictures until the very end. But I'm used to that, so I hope I can explain what I normally do without using all, all of those pictures. Um, I'm very excited to talk about the subject I was asked to talk about. And 
it's um, fascinating to me to think about how those things have affected my career, molded my career, made this, helped me make decisions in my career, and looking back at my life, how I can see God's hand in the things that, everything that I did right. And hopefully that was most of the time, not always, but do the best we can. And uh, I love to talk, and we're gonna end this way too. I love to talk about the subject of joy, uh, finding joy in your life. Uh, the scriptures say that men are that they might have joy. And if, if men are that, joy ought to be a topic of discussion a lot. Do we have joy in our life? How do we get joy in our life? I was listening to President Nelson on the way down, and he was talking about the spirit of gratitude, how the spirit of gratitude can make you uh, uh, love the Savior, love God, appreciate everything that he has done for us. And um, I, I think that fits in, what I listen to fits in nicely with what I want to talk to you about today. Uh, joy shows up in the scriptures a lot, the word joy. And that's just the word itself, not variations of it. I think in the Old Testament, there's 95 times that joy shows up. New Testament is 61. In the Book of Mormon, there's 130 times joy is used. Uh, Doctrine and Covenants 33 and 7 in the Pearl of Great Price. And I believe the Savior used the word joy 17 times as he was teaching. So it's a cool thing to think about, how to have, how to have joy. And my choices in life, when I've done the things that God has directed me to do has always brought me joy. It doesn't mean there isn't hard times, but ultimately there's joy in the journey. So talking about being in the position you are, you're going to school, making career choices, deciding what to do. Here's a couple of things I think that might help uh, uh, you make some decisions like I had to do more than once actually, because as we grow, go through our lives, things change and we may decide we're going to go a different direction. So it's not just one time you make a career choice. But I remember growing up on a little farm in Emmett, Idaho. We had like 10 acres. Uh, my mom and dad, my four brothers and sisters, younger, lived next to my mom's parents who lived next door to my grandpa's parents. And we all lived across the alfalfa field from my dad's parents. And so I had three sets of grandparents around me. I was always within cookie baking, smelling distance uh, at all times. And that was a wonderful life. My mom's side of the family were all devout members of the church. My dad was in the stake presidency most of my life. My grandpa, grandpa were very active. My great grandpa was stake patriarch. On the other side of the alfalfa field, my grandparents on my dad's side were uh, Bible missionaries, which is a very, even stricter than like Nazarenes. And they were, my grandma would wear long dresses and long sleeves and hair in a bun. And they didn't watch TV. They didn't go to movies. It was very, very different. And they weren't very happy when my dad married my mom and joined the church. But it changed my life because of, of that, him doing that. But I remember being a small child growing up on the farm and everything was awesome. 
everything, when you're a child, the world is full of wonders. You have this sense of awe of everything, everything that's new, a new puppy, a sunset, all of those things. How many of you have had the experience growing up of picking a dandelion and bringing it into your mother as if it's the most precious rose ever created? Anybody had that experience? And if you have an awesome mom like mine, your mom would accept that as if it was the most precious rose, even though she knew it was a weed and they tried to kill them because she wanted to share your sense of joy of this beautiful thing that you didn't know was bad. It was, it's still beautiful. But that's the way life was. Life was joyful and um, full of wonder and awe. And we're going to end with that particular thing at the end. So when I'm growing up, things that influenced me to be uh, what I am today, it started, my first memory of wanting to be something was influenced by cowboy TV shows at the time. Even brother, you, I don't know if you remember, Roy Rogers and all of those things. Cowboys in white hats wearing white horses out to get the bad guys. And that sounded like a really fun thing to me. So I wanted to be Roy Rogers. I wanted to be a cowboy. And I wanted to catch bad guys and save, save women tied up on railroad tracks and do all of that stuff. And I, then I decided, no, I, I experienced this new thing on TV. And by the way, when I was a little kid, TV consisted of a 13-inch black and white screen with three channels. And when you changed the channel, you did not do this. You got up across the room and you clicked one of three channels, all of which were black and white, on a screen this big. That was an interesting thing. But on that screen, and then later we got color TV, but on that screen eventually there was a guy named Jacques Cousteau who was an oceanographer. And for a kid in Emmett, he was showing us things you couldn't even hardly imagine. These creatures and these adventures and places he went. I decided to want to be an oceanographer, probably five or six years old. And I thought about this for a long time until my mom explained how far the ocean was from our house. And I could not imagine being an oceanographer and being that far away from mom. And so I decided I couldn't I couldn't do that because the ocean's too far away. So <laughs> the, the very next thing I recall, oddly for a kid growing up on a farm in Emmett, is I decided I want to be a, an attorney. There's nobody in my family that's an attorney. I didn't know any attorneys. But again, it was a TV show, Perry Mason, who was this lawyer that had, did all these cases and there's all this courtroom drama and all crimes and all of this stuff. And that looked really fun. So I wanted to be an attorney, even though I didn't really know what that was. And that stuck with me my whole life until I went to law school. And my ideas about what an attorney did or didn't do changed over time, but that's kind of what I wanted to do. So I had a, kind of an easy time um, deciding what I was eventually going to do. So get through high school. I have awesome friends in high school. 
I love my friends from high school that helped me make good decisions. I, hoped I, I hope I helped them make good decisions. I certainly had family that helped me make good decisions. But by the time I was a senior, all of my friends, except my best friend Steve, who was one of the few members of the church that, that I was friends with, uh, everybody's going to go to U of I. And all of my friends wanted me to go. And I had always wanted to go to BYU, partly because there was a law school there that I wanted to go to. So my friends and I, including Steve, Steve couldn't get into BYU. His grades weren't good enough. They all decided we were going to go to U of I and live in the dorms and be part of a fraternity. And when I told my parents this, they were crushed because, not because of U of I, but just because that wasn't, had been, hadn't been my plan. And they were a little nervous about that. And Steve and I talked about it. And because Steve couldn't get in BYU, we all decided to do that. Well, this went on for some time and made preparations to go to college with all my friends. And one day, I remember sitting in my dad's chair, reading the paper. And a voice came into my head and said, go downstairs and look on your desk. I didn't know what that was about. I went downstairs. I looked on my desk. There was my BYU application. I sat down. I filled it out. I met with the bishop. I got permission to go. I sent it in. And I had to call my friend Steve and tell him I wasn't doing our plan. And as I'm explaining, I didn't have, wasn't brave enough to tell him in person. I had to call him. And he's a big, burly, about the size of Brother Edwards' uh, farm kid. And uh, I said, Steve, I, I have to go. I turned my papers and I have to go. And he started to get emotional, which I had not seen much. And he said, Monty, I was afraid to tell you. I turned my papers in. I got accepted for some miraculous reason. And I was afraid to tell you. And my, so my best friend Steve and I, that fall, instead of going up to U of I, where every one of my friends either dropped out, got kicked out their freshman year because of partying and whatever, Steve and I went down Desert Towers, sixth floor, met 50 other young men that became my eternal friends. And that spring, instead of getting kicked out of school, almost every day, there's someone going to their mailbox and come running down the hall, waving a paper saying, I have my mission call. I got my mission call. And one by one, my friends announced Steve was going to Italy. Mark was going to South Africa. Mike was going to Arizona. John was going, where did John go? Somewhere in South America. And I was called to Korea. And this happened all the time. And so all of this excitement built up. And when I announced to my family home evening group that um, I was going to Korea, one of my family home evening sisters goes, Korea, is that a country? She wasn't quite sure, and I wasn't quite sure where it was. But anyway, got to go to call. So think about this. The Spirit moved me to go to my desk at a time 
that that paper had been sitting there for months. It changed. I went from being with a group who all didn't even get through their freshman year to being among brethren who were excited to get their mission calls. All of our friends were excited when others got their calls. And we mostly left at the same time. And so during our missions, we could communicate with each other about all the wonderful things that have happened. And those, those five friends are still with me today. We get together with our spouses and they're some of the most cherished friendships I have. So ended up at BYU, made an entire, made all the difference. I spent two years in Korea. I could tell you hours of stories about being in Korea, but this is more about career. But my mission prepared me for everything else in my life, certainly strengthened my testimony, gave me lots of experiences of dealing at the church, dealing with people with other religious beliefs, mostly Buddhist in Korea. And I had the opportunity to under, help people understand the true and living God and a savior, uh, people that would typically go once a year to a cave where's a big rock Buddha and they would bring in food and money and that was their God. And so introducing them to the savior was so amazing when they figured out it wasn't this, it was this. And I came home from my mission and I finished uh, college. I started out as an econ major, but realized that that required math classes and I'm very bad at math. So I changed and ended up graduating and applying for law school at BYU. That was my whole goal. I wanted to go to BYU law school. And during college, I had good grades, but I was involved in a lot of other things, sports and uh, what? Don't click the pen. Thank you. That's my monitor over there. Her and my wife have the same. Oh, that's right. Right in front of the microphone. Hello? Hello? Okay. So, uh, oh, now I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, no, it's okay. So I'd been involved in student government and other things, and I thought that would make up for not having, you know, straight A's and required to get into law school. Well, I got the letter back saying that uh, I had been rejected. And this, this crushed me. It couldn't be true. My whole destiny was to, to go to BYU Law School. I didn't want to go any. I had not applied anywhere else. So I had no school to go to. And I remember driving to the parking lot of the... J. Reuben Clark Law School and sitting in my car, staring at the law school and seeing the Provo Temple behind and Mount Timpanogos and just praying for hours, uh, wondering what was going to happen. What was I supposed to do now? I did not know. But after several weeks of this, I'm sitting there looking and this calmness came over me, a sense of peace. Monty, it's going to be okay. Things will be okay. So I decided I'm going to wait a year and I'm going to apply again. But I had to get a job in the meantime. So I got this job. It wasn't a very good job, and I started working. I also, because I didn't have to go to law school, I didn't finish my senior paper, which was the only requirement I had to finish my degree. I thought I had a whole year to do that. 
Two weeks before law school started, I got a call saying, you're in. A bunch of people didn't come, and you're, you're on the third, third section, and we never put, take in those people, but somehow you're in. And you can't even imagine how I felt, how miraculous it was, and, and the fact that the peace had been there sometime earlier. I waited a whole summer not thinking I was going to law school, and all of a sudden I'm at work, I get a call, and they said, and I'm just like dancing around, and then I remembered. I didn't finish my senior paper. I had not graduated from college. I, I was I, now I was terrified that my, what am I going to do now? I, I, I went, I made an appointment with Dean Rex Lee, who some of you know. He's a solicitor general of the United States, BYU Law School. Did all kinds of callings in the church. He was awesome. Awesome, awesome man. And I don't know why I thought what I was going to do if I go in and talk to him. What, what's Dean Lee going to do? I come in, I said, Dean Lee, I'm, I'm in, but I haven't graduated from college. So I don't know what to do. And he said, well, how long would it take you to do your senior paper? Oh, I could get it done during the first semester. Okay, you're in. You're coming to law school. No, wait, really? No, you, you, you just come and get your senior paper done, and we'll get you going. Well, law school was kind of like college. I went to every ball game that Steve Young played in. Uh, I, I was involved in student government. I had, had this great time uh, with my friends, all of this, and law school was really hard. And I found myself in my last semester of law school not having completed my senior paper. <laughs> so this kind of built up to tremendous pressure and went into Dean Lee again and explained. He says, well, you better get that done. <laughs> so I got it done literally the week before college graduation and a week and a half, no, the same, and law school graduation. Minutes before I was about to tell my parents I was not graduating from either college or law school, <laughs> they came down from Emmett to participate. I found out that my senior paper had been accepted, I could now graduate, and then I could now graduate from law school. So I think I am the only person in BYU history to graduate from college and law school on the same day. <laughs> this is not a proud accomplishment. <laughs> this is not something like, oh, he was extra special. He could do both. No, this was like a miracle that this even happened. Morning, graduate, get this, get my law degree in the afternoon. It was a terrible thing. And so I'm not suggesting that to anyone. I'm just saying that that's kind of the path that I was, that I was on. And, but because I wasn't a great law student, you get, you get to be in the top of your class in law school. You can pretty much go anywhere. You can get a job at the Supreme Court clerk. You can get jobs at the top law firms. You can make lots of money coming out of law school. 
Well, I wasn't at the top. I was a student body president of the law school, but I was not a straight A student. And so when it came time to graduate and get a job, I didn't have a lot of firms wanting me to come there because I wasn't one of the top students. And so I got a job at the Ada County Prosecutor's Office. I was a prosecutor. They liked me for reasons that were unrelated to my grades. And that turned out to be a wonderful blessing because being a prosecutor was my lifelong experience. My friends who had great grades and went to work for fancy law firms and earned lots of money, would usually, we would go to lunch once a week and nobody wanted to talk about their boring cases of filling out somebody's will or doing some contract. They wanted to hear about the homicide scene I'd just been to or some drug deal. And after a while, they didn't want to go to lunch with me anymore because they didn't have anything exciting to talk about. And I was doing all of these things and going to search warrants, have people want to kill me, all kinds of fun stuff. <laughs> and so I spent... When you're a first prose prosecutor, you do little cases. You do speeding, you do petty theft, you, those kind of things. Then you graduate to, graduate to DUIs and then burglaries and bigger thefts. And ultimately, as you go along, you start to do things like really serious crimes up to murder. And I had those kind of cases. I dealt with all the child abuse cases in the county for a year. I dealt with some horrible people. I dealt with others that made bad mistakes and immediately recognized it, turned their life around. I dealt with all the juvenile kids in the county. Every kid that was in trouble with the law, I dealt with for, for an entire year. And I saw a lot of things and realized a lot of things. And one of the things I realized is that most of the problems we have in society, most of the crime problems, a lot of the mental health problems, a lot of the things that go on that make people's lives go upside down is related to substance abuse, whether it's legal or illegal drugs. It causes most of the problems you see in the criminal justice system. And so I decided instead of dealing with all the consequences of substance abuse, I wanted to focus on the root causes, which is the drug cases. And so. I, early on, I became a specialist in drug cases, and that caused me a few years later to be hired by the U.S. Attorney's Office, which is the Federal Prosecutor's Office in Boise. And I became in charge of something called the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force, which is just a fancy name for prosecutors and agents and analysts. Then our job was to identify investigate and prosecute the biggest, baddest, meanest, nastiest drug traffickers we could find. And that, it wasn't drug users, it was serious things. LA street gangs that moved to Pocatello, biker gangs, meth cooks, uh, cartels, international drug smugglers. I spent the next 25 years doing these big cases and seeing a lot of things I saw. I saw things that you can only imagine that most people only know about through reading the newspaper or watching TV. I was in the middle of that. I, I had uh, one of my first big cases was a guy who owned a bar in Idaho Falls. He was rich, had airplane. He was famous, but he's a drug dealer, he's a cocaine dealer. 
and the local police couldn't catch him. And he got away with this for years. Well, we did a big investigation on him and um, ended up prosecuting him and putting him in jail. He's like 65 at the time and very wealthy. We took away his airplane, took away his house. We put him in jail. Shortly thereafter, we started getting information that he had hired someone to kill me and my case agent. We put out $50,000 to have us killed. And uh, so this was an interesting experience because when we had gone to his house to arrest him and did a search warrant, we found a letter from his bishop welcoming him to the ward. I mean, he must not go very often. But so that was an interesting thing. So a year later, he's been in jail and he's finally realized he's going to prison for a long time. So I had a chance to interview him for a long time, for, for days with my DEA agents. And after I got to know him a little better, I, I asked him, I said, Linus, what's the deal about you trying to kill Donnie and I? He said, oh, that didn't happen. I didn't do that. I said, I said, Lennis, we've heard it from five different sources. We know it's true. Why, why did you do that? Well, in order to stop him from doing that, months earlier, I'd sent a DEA and FBI agent into a cell to tell him we knew about that. They said, listen, if anything happens to Stiles, we're coming after you. So when he's explaining this to me, he says, no, I didn't do that, Mr. Stiles, but I can tell you this. After those gentlemen visited me in the jail, I prayed for you every day because he thought, he thought if anything happened to me, he'd be, he'd be in trouble. So that was kind of a fun thing that he prayed for me all the time. So uh, anyway, I had a very interesting life. I got to go lots of places in the world and all over the country. At the same time, I'm, a, I'm becoming a dad, got two little boys, Chris and Travis. And the dad part of it was an interesting experience, too, trying to uh, juggle family, church, career, all at the same time. Sometimes we would have FBI guys around our house or U.S. Marshals visiting us because of cases we were doing. And it was scary for my wife and kids. Well, I thought it was kind of fun, but they did not. But I remember when Chris and Travis were very little, we got a little kitten. And this kitten was so cute, and they loved this kitten. But one day, coming home from school, one of them found the kitten laying in the gutter in the road and had been run over. And they brought this little kitty into me, and it was badly hurt. And I knew this kitty was a goner. And we're holding it and looking at it. And we went in the bathroom and sat on the floor. And one of them said, Daddy, just give him a blessing. Bless him, and he gets better. What am I supposed to do? This poor kitten's back is broken. It's smashed. It's just it's like this. And I thought, these two little boys who had great faith in God and the priesthood and their dad wanted me to bless this kitten. And I'm thinking, what, what am I going to do? So holding this little guy, my boy's watching me bow her heads. I did not know what to say. And the words came to me. Heavenly Father, we love this little kitten. We do not want it to suffer. Will you please take him home now so that he doesn't suffer? And he did, almost immediately. Instead of shaking my boy's faith, they 
knew that it was answered to our prayer, prayers. And that's one of many experiences that as parents, as you grow up, you'll have opportunities to, to do that. I remember another time I was in the middle of a very stressful case and I think in the middle of the night, I'm having a heart attack. I'm young, healthy. I think I'm having a heart attack. And I had to leave everybody, drive myself to the hospital. I'm driving down Vista to downtown to the hospital and my chest, boom, 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 boom. And I remember driving and crying, thinking I'm gonna die. And I'm praying, Heavenly Father, please save me from this. And just back and forth. And then this warm, comforting feeling came over and said, Monty, you're gonna be fine. Even though it still hurt, you're gonna be fine. I kept driving and I thought it was comforted. Then I thought, well, am I gonna be fine because I'm gonna get better or am I gonna be fine because I'm gonna die and that's okay too? <laughs> so I didn't know what to do then. It was like, oh, either way, it's gonna be fine. But I didn't know which. So anyway, lots of experiences as a dad and scoutmaster and all of those kind of things. Um, but when I was a prosecutor for the feds, I, we did a lot of cases that took us a lot of places. We went to Europe, we went to Hawaii, went all over the country, went to Fiji, went to Hong Kong three times, Thailand twice. Got to see a lot of interesting things, but you'd think going to those exotic places, the, the best experiences would be something related to the case. They usually were not. They were usually related to the church. I'll give you two quick examples. We were in Fiji for 10 days chasing drug dealers that lived in Sun Valley were millionaires. They're Thai marijuana smugglers. M multiple ton boatloads of dope come from Thailand to Southern California. They made millions of dollars. And we're over there working with the Fijian government. And on a Sunday, my partner and I, who is a member of the church, decided we wanted to see if we could find a branch in, in uh, Suva in Fiji and had to check a bunch of places and finally found out there's this little branch on the outside side of town and we took a bus there. Got, didn't know when church started. We got there at nine o'clock in the morning and there's not a soul there. And there's no signs, there's nothing. So we sat in the parking lot and no one came and no one came and around 10 people started to show up a few at a time. They were all barefoot. The men in Fiji wear dresses, skirts down to here. Most of them were bare feet, barefoot. Not a car showed up. They came from every direction in bare feet, no cars. A few got off the bus, but most walked. And by the time church started, this little tiny chapel, half the size of this, that was a cinder block building and folding, metal folding chairs that filled up with people. And the Fijian people are wonderful. There was no one to play the organ. Well, they had a little electronic thing. I later found out the only person who could play the organ had gone to BYU Hawaii, so they lost their organist. There was no car in the ward. No one owned a car. I found out later the only people that had a car was the branch president and his wife that they had just sold so they could go to the temple in Tonga. But the, one of the most interesting things is when they sang without any accompaniment, the spirit filled that room 
like the Tabernacle Choir. They felt it. They felt every word of it. They had nothing but God and the Spirit. And then I think as pitiful as our word is, singing, it's just, we wish we could invite some of those word those people over and show us how to sing. But that was an interesting thing. And another time I'm in Hong Kong and we're there for days and days and days working really hard. But I knew there was a temple on the Kowloon side of the harbor. Hong Kong is an island and across the harbor is still Hong Kong, but it's called Kowloon. There's a temple over there and I wanted to see it. And I couldn't get anybody to go with me. So at night, I get on a subway train that goes underneath the harbor, pops up in Kowloon. There's nothing in English. I don't speak any Chinese. And I wandered around for several hours in the dark, not being able to ask directions, looking for this address that didn't make any sense to me for an, an LDS temple. And I just couldn't find it. And I was almost ready to give up. When I saw in the distance um, uh, a statue of Moroni shining on what looked like a five-story office building. Didn't look like a temple, it's an office building. And I was kind of tired and sweaty. I had shorts on, a t-shirt and a hat. And I got there and there's a little courtyard in front. And inside I could see the door, there's a door open. And there's a little Chinese guy at the desk just waiting there for people. And I kind of stepped into the courtyard and was trying to peek in. And I was kind of embarrassed to be there dressed the way I was. He saw me and he says, broken English, come in, come in. I said, oh, no, I can't. I'm, look at me the way I'm, I can't. No, no, he says, we don't care how you dress. We care you came. And he just escorted me in for just a minute to be in the temple. Um, it's just a wonderful, wonderful feeling. And that was the best experience I had of the whole trip was that. So now let's, um, let me think, we, we're running out of time, so I want to tell you about a low point in my life. Um, and I, won't, I can't explain to you what happened, but there was something that was devastating. And I prayed for relief, and none came. And it happened, went on and on and on. And... The more I prayed, the less I felt God's presence. I felt at one point like the heavens were closed to me, that I didn't know if God was hearing me, listening, didn't know if he was aware of my situation. And um, I think, I, although I didn't have boils, it kind of felt like Job, who his friends abandoned him, even his wife said, you should just curse God and die. But what I decided to do was keep doing what I knew I was supposed to do. And I just kept doing it, even though I didn't feel. And at some point, that all came back. It was like a test. And, and part of the test, test was my good bishop assigned me to be the gospel doctrine teacher. So in this time of great need, I spent all week studying the gospel. And then every week had a, an opportunity to uh, teach it and that went through, like you brethren, go through the whole scriptures uh, in four years, and that was wonderful. When I left the U.S. Attorney's Office, I was not old enough to retire. I had the best job, most fun job any attorney could have, but I felt the need to leave 
because I wanted to, it's tired of putting people in jail. I felt like the avenging angel. I punished the wicked. But that wasn't really fun after 25 years. I wanted to go teach people about how to not, to not make those decisions that put them in that situation. So I left my job without a job and began doing talks around the country to kids and adults and community leaders. And now, instead of having an income, my only income, steady income, was giving talks. So I'd go around the country, and if I had lots of talks, and make it good income. If I didn't, I didn't. So it was a very stressful time in my life, although it was fun going around giving talks at, at different places. And a very interesting thing happened to me because uh, I found out there's a Mark Twain quote that I love. He says, the two most important days in your life is the day you're born and the day you find out why. And I found out, almost all of us, hopefully, if you haven't yet, you will soon, find out why you're here on the earth. And the gospel helps with that. But I found out that I had a new why, and that was to teach. And so I started doing that, and I re really loved that. But because I was so busy, uh, I didn't have much time to find joy. And I found myself being in airports all the time, running around. But then I'd get to a place, and I'd give them talk about adventures and excitement and joy and all of this stuff. But I wasn't experiencing any of that myself. I was wearing myself out. And one night I'm in the Chicago airport. It's almost empty. I'm waiting for a flight. I'm sitting there by myself. And again, a little voice comes into my head. And it says, Styles, you are a fraud. Ah! Why did that pop into my head? You're a fraud. Here I was going around motivational speaking, helping people, you know, get excited about life. And you're a fraud. And I kept thinking. And then the, these words came to me. You are, living, you are not living the life you teach. You're not being authentic to what you are teaching people about having joy and adventures and doing all these fun things. And so I decided I had to get back to that old Monty and I was going to make sure that everything I told other people to do, I started to do myself, which means to live as I taught. And that was, became very clear to me one time I was given a talk at a big conference in Seattle. My topic was service-based leadership, but it's in a secular setting. So people, not religious people mostly, are there, big auditorium. I'm at this conference and service-based leadership, and where do you think most of the principles came from that I talked about? Gospel principles, but said in a secular setting. And it was very emotional, and I get kind of teared up, and I said things about faith and things that seemed resonated with people of faith. And I remember finishing this talk, and this gentleman who introduced himself as Robert came up to me, had tears in his eyes, and he said, Monty, I so much appreciate your expressions of faith. You're obviously a person of faith and a Christian, and I so, I'm glad you mentioned that. So that got us into a really cool discussion about how faith is important and all that. And at one point he asked me, well, what denomination did I belong to? And I said, a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And it's like I hit him in the face with a hammer. He backs up, physically distanced himself from me. Like I was some kind of alien. And I knew what that meant. 
And I said, Robert, well, you just had a reaction to me. Why is that? Well, you're, you're not a Christian, but you've been talking about God and faith and all this. And I said, Robert, do you believe in the Bible? He said, yes. I said, I do too. Robert, do you believe in a, there was a baby named Jesus who was the first begotten of God and they lived a sinless life and died for our sins on the, on the cross and, um, and was resurrected and lives today in the heavens and that without believing in him, we can't go to heaven? He said, yes, I believe in that person. I said, I do too. That's the person I believe in. That's the God I worship. And he looks at me and he said, you're a born again Mormon. <laughs> like, like he had never heard, heard anything like that. And I said, Robert, most of us are. That's part of our, anyway, it was a really interesting thing where being authentic and teaching what I believe gave me an opportunity to do some missionary work. Now, let me, let me final, finalize here a couple of things. Um, after many, many years of dealing with criminals and going to hot, autopsies and homicide scenes and dealing with children that have been abused and hurt in terrible ways, dealing with drug dealers, all of that, my brain got filled with a lot of very sad stories. And about this time, our last child, Jessica, had gone away to college. And so we were no kids at home. Our lives changed. Didn't have all the soccer games, scouts, all of that. I found myself going back and forth from work and not having all those other things. And I woke up one day feeling depressed. I woke up and thought, the world is a dark, scary place filled with bad people doing bad things. And it scared me because that's not my nature to be that way. And I decided, hey, I got to get out of this mindset. I have to do something different to get out of this state of depression I was in. So I decided that my therapy with the kids all gone was going to, I was going to buy a cheap camera and start taking pictures. And so I did. And even though I did, I, I love sports and the outdoors, this camera, when I bought this cheap film camera, it changed me because when I looked through the lens of a camera, what do you think I was looking for? I wasn't thinking about the drug dealer who wanted to kill me or the autopsy I'd just been to. I was thinking about what cool thing is around here. Let me find it. I'm going to take a picture. And then if I got a picture, if I could even tell what it was because I was terrible at it, I want to share it with somebody else. Look at this. Look at this. And so in the end, I got to be this, this kind of like fanatic photographer where I always have a camera in my hand. And that relates to what President Nelson was saying on the way down. And that is photography for me has given me a sense of gratitude, of thankfulness for God and his creations. With a camera in my hand, I notice everything that is wonderful, of good report beautiful things, and I am thankful to God every day. And that has increased my testimony in lots of ways. That was a turning point in my life where I, I'm able to wake up and be that little boy again when I'm out enjoying God's creation. So now I take a lot of pictures, and tour of God's creation includes 
little foam bubbles on the sea, little tiny bubbles that when I took pictures of them, I noticed that they're like little TV cameras mirroring me and all kinds of colors, rain falling on our garden, all of God's creatures. It could be creepy looking things like this, but this is what they can, they can create. Uh, I watched a butterfly drink out of a flower a little girl was holding at a park, a tiny little frog on a giant lily pad in San Diego, a hummingbird in Phoenix, a hummingbird that came to our garden because we grow sunflowers, a neighbor's kitten, a neighbor's dog that was really pretty dog, a red-tailed hawk baby 50 feet in the tree that this old guy climbed in the middle of a rainstorm so that I could look eyeball to eyeball at this creature, and it was, it was magical. Four-foot-tall sandhill cranes with babies that are hard to see. When I approached them, mama and the babies crouched down in the grass and moved this direction. Dad stood up proudly and walked this way. Why? Protect the babies. But I watched this happen. Dad, in protecting his babies, got near some other babies, blackbird nest, and look what happened as a result. They were protecting their babies. The things in nature that are very interesting. Uh, this is a beautiful lion in the Idaho Falls Zoo. That's his baby boy. A little fox in the foothills. Little foxes fighting. One on a lake in Cascade. Little fawns. Uh, I saw one time my son and I hunt cougars, take pictures of cougars in the winter. And they're beautiful creatures, but they sometimes get angry if you get in their tree. And that, that is a baby one. I was atop of a juniper tree on New Year's Eve a few years ago, watching this beautiful creature. And this is its little brother or sister staring at me from the other side. It was like in heaven. But uh, the world is full of God's creatures. A mama bear taking her babies through a geyser in Yellowstone. God's children include all of you. My good friend Al and his first granddaughter. My grandson... Chance, my nieces in wildflowers, our granddaughter Mia learning to walk the first time she saw a peacock with grandpa, first time she held a starfish, dancing on the beach for grandma and I in sunset. My grandpa, who lived to be 101 years old, who is my neighbor uh, of my parents my whole life, who was awesome. And that's him on Father's Day when he was 94. And that's a picture of him on his funeral program. All the world's full of opportunities and adventures that we can do. The world is full of those things, including my wife's best birthday gift to me ever, a chance to jump out of a plane when I was 60. Worlds, places you can go, things you can see, a Mayan temple. But all, all of those things are on this planet that we live on. Beautiful things everywhere you go if you seek to look for them. And it's infinite. And all of this reminds me, last story, of Moses' experience when he was called up to a high mountain and he talked to God. And God showed him some of his creations. And Moses was so overcome by seeing this, he collapsed. And when he came to, and there's more to the story, he came to and came to his senses and talked to God again. What was his question? Well, God, why did you do all of this? 
And at first, the Lord didn't want to tell him. He said, this is for my own good reasons. And I'm not telling you, Moses, my son. And Moses persisted. And finally, um, the Lord said, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. In other words, what God was saying to Moses and to each of us is, these are my creations, but you are my child. That is the case for every single person in this room and every person out there. God's creations were all to bring to pass the immortality, eternal life of man. That is a Hubble telescope picture of a teeny tiny speck of the known universe. 2,600 lights in this tiny speck, except for a couple, each one of those lights rep represents a galaxy with between a half a billion and two trillion suns. And that never ends. That's the universe we live in. That's the world, the universe that God the person, the being we worship, created for his children. All of that makes me so grateful that we have a kind and loving Heavenly Father who created these things for us to learn and experience. And to the extent we remember that, who we are, and the things that God did for us, we can find joy in our life when we learn and believe and act in accordance with our beliefs and the truth and what God says. So final thing is, I want to leave you with, we are God's children. Families are forever. Jesus is in the heavens and will return. And as a homeless man once said, who came into the back of a chapel on a fast and testimony meeting, in the university stake, came in with short shorts and a leather vest without a shirt under, long hair, homeless man, sat in the back of the, ch I got to meet him later, sat in the back of the chapel. During testimony meeting, he got up and told us that Jesus was coming. And then he leaned into the mic and he said, the most powerful testimony we had that day. It was very interesting. Anyway, for those of you out there somewhere, I'm sorry you didn't see the pictures. Janet will bring them to your house if you ask her to. Thanks for the invitation. That's all. We're done. <laughs>